0: Welcome to this Touch Podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Oncology. In this podcast, Professor Nicole Consin explores recent key developments in the management of patients with endometrial cancer, as presented at the ESCO 2023 Congress in Istanbul, Turkey. Aspects covered include the importance of molecular characterization and the latest clinical data for new and emerging agents, including immunotherapies and other agents, in the treatment of advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer. Professor Konsin also discusses with Dr. Mansur Raza Mirza and Dr. Sandro Pignatta how the latest developments may impact clinical practice. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from GlaxoSmithKline and is provided by Touch IME. I would like to welcome Professor Consin to review her selected presentations from ESCO 2023.
1: A warm welcome to this webinar and podcast where we together review the new data that were presented at the ESCO Congress in Istanbul. Uh, I am delighted to have uh, two fantastic faculty members and close friends with me today. Professor Mansur Mirza from Ricks Hospital in Copenhagen. He is medical oncologist and vice president of the ESCO and Professor Sandro Pignata from the Institutio Nazionale Tumori in Napoli, Italy, a key opinion leader in endometrial cancer, past president of the ENGOT. Uh, wonderful to have you here. My name is Nicole Kontzin, I'm gyne located at the Medical University of Innsbruck. And it's my particular pleasure to report on the Congress outcome as ESCO president. We will uh, today target three main topics of new data presented. First, the molecular characterization of endometrial cancer. Second, the efficacy and safety data in advanced and recurrent endometrial cancer with focus on immunotherapies. And third, efficacy and safety in advanced and and recurrent endometrial cancer, focusing on other emerging agents. So let's dive deep into the molecular classification of endometrial cancer. The TCGA, the Cancer Genome Atlas, is now celebrating its 10-year anniversary in endometrial cancer. These data have completely changed our view on endometrial cancer, which gave this disease the name Cinderella disease. It's really four different distinct molecular diseases. All European major guidelines, the ESCO, the ASTRO, and the ESP, and also the ESMO guidelines have integrated molecular characterization into risk group stratification and treatment recommendations. And also the new 2023 FIGO staging system is now integrating molecular markers. I'll start with the data presented by Livia Xindoli from the European Institute uh, of Oncology in Milan. They have shown data on the impact of molecular classes on oncologic outcome in a prospective trial from one tertiary referral center. What did they do? They have uh, continuously done molecular classification in all incoming endometrial cancer patients starting from April 2019. They have done pole analysis with next generation sequencing, DMMR status and P53 uh, status determined by immunohistochemistry and also RTPCR for microsatellite instability status. They have compared the molecular subtypes with clinical pathological characteristics and survival analysis. And this was the outcome of this interesting data. You see here the distribution of molecular classification in this prospective cohort, NSMP the highest prevalence, DMMR around one-third of patients, 15% P53 abnormalities and a relatively high percentage of Pole E mutations present in this prospective cohort of stage 1 to stage 3 disease. Recurrence occurred in about 12% of patients. There was no recurrence accounted in the Pole E mutated a molecular subgroup and the highest recurrence rate in the p53 abnormal group. Uh, This is expected and this reflects also what we see in the literature. Pole E has a protective role and p53 abnormalities are a negative uh, predictive value for outcome of our patients. So we move forward uh, to the next abstract of uh, Valentina Bruno. Uh, She did an interesting study examining uh, new omic immunological predictive features and looking for the added value if this is integrated into parameters of existing guidelines to more uh, accurately predict uh, risk for recurrence in endometrial cancer patients. This group has studied the relative abundance of five main immune populations in public data and generated a machine learning-based model for disease-free survival probability prediction. In this EC framework, the model integrating the immune populations had a higher accuracy to predict recurrence compared to guideline parameters alone. And this opens up precision oncology approaches in terms of prognosis and decision-making for treatment and follow-up. Another interesting abstract of uh, Dr. Pan evaluated uh, the mRNA expression levels of immune checkpoint genes like PD1, PDL1, and uh, interferon gamma in endometrial carcinoma tissue and correlated these findings with outcome of the patients. They had control tissue of uh, 25 non-malignant tissues. And also in the subgroup of 81 patients, they have determined the four molecular subtype and group them into hot tumors if a pole E mutation or DMMR status was present, and into cold tumors in case of P53 abnormality and uh, non-specific molecular profile. And this interesting study showed that uh, PD1 mRNA expression was sevenfold higher in endometrial carcinoma tissue compared to normal. The same was true for PDL1 expression higher levels, threefold greater in carcinoma compared to normal tissue, and also a strong increase of interferon gamma RNA expression, fivefold higher in the carcinoma compared to normal tissue. The correlations with clinical outcomes showed that a high expression mRNA expression of PD1, PDL1 and interferon gamma was associated with better clinical outcomes. High expression of T- PD1 was predictive for relapse free survival. High expression of PDL1 was associated with better overall survival. And the hot tumors showed the highest expression of PD1 and interferon gamma. So immune checkpoint molecules were shown in this specific uh, nice but small study to be associated with clinical outcome in endometrial cancer patients. The last study on molecular classification we are going to discuss today is uh, the data shown by Richard Schwammeis on the verification of the prognostic precision of the new 2023 FIGO staging system in endometrial cancer patients. An international pooled analysis of three ESCO accredited centers. This is a retrospective study uh, that was performed at Gemelli Clinic, Rome, Medical Universities of Innsbruck and Vienna, and where a total of 519 endometrial carcinomas were reclassified according to 2023 new FIGO staging, and compared to the 2009 FIGO staging, stage shifts have been analyzed, and five-year progression-free and overall survival rates have been calculated. And this is the main results in early stage disease. You see here only stage one, stage two disease, stage shifts compared to 2009. Uh, occurred in 2023, fecal staging in more than one quarter of patients, so a substantial proportion. Importantly, the main shifts were upshifts to a higher stage, 90% upshifts due to uh, aggressive histological subtype and P53 abnormalities and substantial LVSI. Downshifts uh, occurred in early stage disease in about 10% of patients and they all concerned the presence of pole E mutations. What you nicely see here is that pole E mute uh, carcinoma demonstrated the best uh, progression-free survival, 100% five year progression-free survival rate on the top of early stage disease and the worst prognosis at the bottom, the p53 abnormal, you see the new fecal staging beautifully spreads uh, the survival rates within early stage disease and adds additional uh, granularity. We applied multiple statistical tests to uh, compare the prognostic decision of these two Figo classification systems and all the tests demonstrated the same superiority of 2023 Figo staging to predict progression-free survival and overall survival. So to conclude, It is important to perform molecular classification in patients with endometrial carcinoma, and this is recommended by all major European guidelines. This will improve risk group stratification and guide clinical decision-making. Immune checkpoint molecules might be associated with clinical outcomes. This is new data that we have seen on PDL1, PD1 and interferon gamma expression and I look forward to discuss this data. The new FIGO 2003 staging system demonstrated a higher prognostic precision compared to the old FIGO staging system. Dr. Consin. Thank you for this comprehensive update on the
0: molecular characterization of endometrial cancer. Let's invite your colleagues, Dr. Mirza and Dr. Pignata, to share their thoughts.
1: So, dear Mansoor and dear Sandro, uh, how do you interpret the data with respect to molecular classification, what we have seen at ESCO Congress? What is uh, the important N- the importance of the new data we've seen.
2: I think these are very I- interesting and important data that have been presented. The, the message I understand from, from this abstract uh, that, that is that we absolutely need to use the molecular classific- classification in, in our practice. Uh, because it may change our treatment therapy decision in m- many patients, and uh, so we we need to convince all the hospitals of our countries to to do this. Of course, for some of these analyses, particularly, uh, the polymutation. mutation, uh, uh, there are also organizational uh, aspects that uh, should be focused and centralization of tests may be necessary in some areas. But I think it's worthwhile because you see that the prognosis change completely if there is a polymutation, mutation and uh, our decision according.
3: And I completely agree, Sandro. I think I think we have we are also learning something very different from the new data coming in the classification and how it correlates to that. We have targeted agents, uh, which will uh, which will uh, take the subgroup of a population, and you, of that population will benefit. That probably we have to start thinking of treatment algorithms not according to the stage of the disease: stage one, stage two, stage three. The relapse, but longitudinally that we say that MMR deficient, how these patients should be treated in future in first line, second line, third line, the the HER2, the P53 wild type. So I think our way of thinking should change from these horizontal states in our mind to the longitudinal to use that molecular classification much more practically in the clinic. What do you say? I would like to hear your comments on that. That may be quite provocative, but I think we have to go there.
2: Yes, fully agree. And uh, I think we we learn in ovarian cancer after many, many years, that what we call ovarian cancer is not a single disease. And I strongly believe that this is also the case of endometrial cancer, where uh, molecular abnormalities characterize different Diseases with different behavior, and as you say, different algorithms of treatment.
1: I think this is really important, uh, what you now uh, stressed and suggested, Mansoor. Um, it is really different tumors, these four molecular subtypes of endometrial cancer. And this is also the reason why the FIGO committee has actually taken the decision to record in all stages the molecular subtype if this information is available. So if it is available, this should be recorded. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, because as you and Sandro beautifully pointed out, this will influence our treatment decision-making beyond a better prediction of prognosis. It has therapeutic implications. So if it's available, we need to know and we need to uh, record it. And uh, the, the two cases of polymute and P53 abnormality change FIGO stage, and already our existing guidelines does, do have treatment recommendations in these specific uh, patient population. And it will become probably what, what is your consideration? If, if we go in this direction, probably we can be much more specific in our recommendations. What, what are your thoughts on that?
2: we know clearly now for at least three classes that we can probably change our behavior in, uh, for sure in, in the adjuvant setting. There is still one class where probably much more uh, work is needed to better characterize because it's, uh, it's still a, a, an heterogeneous uh, group of patients without P53 abnormality, without the MMR, and without poly. And the, in this group, probably there are again different, uh, completely different diseases that we we need to try to identify.
3: Uh, no, I completely agree. I think uh, that's why I call that group Jurassic Park. Uh, mm-hmm. It's so heterogeneous. Um, I think I think we are we are getting there. I think we are getting there. We are doing trials now. We will be starting the trials against HER two. Uh, separately. We will be we are already we will discuss Nicole later the trials on the p53 wild type population, we will be doing trials with PARP, uh, where you can say that uh, p53 abnormal is a surrogate factor. So I think we are already moving to the right direction, taking these subgroups, finding the right targeted therapy and doing the trials. My question is, can we now be mature to think in longitudinally what happens when this patient progresses, what are we going to do with that subgroup and that subgroup? So I think we have to start making our our minds clear that these are as Nicole nicely said different diseases, subset of the different that we have to look at each of these molecular type separately as much as possible.
1: And we will we will do so in the updating process of ESCO, Astro, ESP, Endometrial Cancer Guidelines, which just started to include all this new evidence and to refer to the new FIGO staging. So the kickoff we did at the ESCO Congress and we will be more specific in our recommendations, I guess. Just please, uh, Mansoor and Sandro, if you share your thoughts, a nice piece of data uh, we've seen is uh, the RNA expression levels of PD1, PDL1, interferon gamma to correlate in this small but nice study with patient outcome. Uh, and also, you saw the study using. Um artificial intelligence for clustering for immunological subtypes which goes in the same direction and the integration of these immunological subtypes help to improve prognostication of the patients. What do you think about such approaches? I have not seen a lot of data on this before. Do you think that's an interesting piece to further explore or what are your thoughts on this?
3: This is a very interesting hypothesis, Uh, it has to be validated in the prospective trials, which we have done, we have possibility to validate that, because we should be very careful right now we know that immune therapy predictive value of uh, which of which biomarkers is there for immune therapy's efficacy, that is MMR status, and that is TMB uh, uh pdl one is not the, the right predictive value. So so combining it with others and it would be nice. We also had some small studies telling us that different, different patients in MMR status could behave if it is mutation or uh, others uh, could behave differently on immune therapy. That was a retrospective data on small uh, trials. We are just beginning to understand What is predictive uh, and how we can use it. And we have to validate these data before we can use them in clinic.
1: Fully agree with you. The validation in prospective trials is is crucial. Regarding PDL1
2: and Personally, of course, I agree that uh, it needs validation and further studies. Personally, I think PD- PD1, PDL1 is a more dynamic process than the genomic landscape. So it's not easy to catch the real meaning of this uh, expression level uh, from the RNA. But of course, we'll see in uh, next studies. Regarding uh, machine learning, uh, I, um, uh, I strongly believe that this is the future. The main problem is how to work on this, but there are, we, we now uh, start to see uh, experiments done on, on genomic data, but even on morphology data, for example, the, the simple morphology in hematoxyl and can be uh, used to to develop a machine learning process that can identify the subtypes. I think this is the future for sure.
0: Thank you to all three experts for their valuable insights. Now let's look at the latest efficacy and safety data in advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer with a focus on new and emerging immunotherapies. Professor Konsin, would you like to review your selected presentations on key data
1: on this topic that were presented at ESCO 2023? We have seen... Uh, amazing randomized phase 3 data on immune therapy recently, both published in New England Journal of Medicine, the Ruby trial and also the uh, NRG uh, GY018 trial and at ESCO Istanbul Congress nice further analysis of Ruby trial have been shown, namely the twist analysis and also a closer look at the safety profile in this trial. And we have also seen the data on an antibody drug conjugate targeting uh, HER2 and the preliminary safety and efficacy data of this compound. And we will now dive first into this HER2 targeting ADC data. The compound is called DB1303. And it is uh, uh, the data on preliminary efficacy and safety in an ongoing phase 1 to a trial in different solid tumors. And for the first time at ESCO Istanbul Congress, the initial data in the endometrial cancer cohort have been shown, which currently consists of 32 endometrial cancer patients who were dosed with these compounds on seven and eight milligrams per kilogram IV every three weeks. The antibody drug conjugate the payload of this uh, two targeting adc is topoisomerase 1 inhibitor in the endometrial carcinoma patients the histologies included uh, serous Endometrial carcinoma, adenocarcinoma, and also carcinosarcoma. We know that carcinosarcoma and serous tumors in endometrial uh, cancer, particularly, are the ones that harbor P53 abnormalities and the ones who express HER2 measured by immunohistochemistry, one, two or three plus, or also by in-situ hybridization, positive for HER2 were included uh, in this trial. The median treatment duration was 2.6 months, and 90% of the patients remained on treatment. And we will see now the data on the objective response rates, which was the primary endpoint together with uh, safety, namely uh, equal or bigger grade 3 treatment emergent adverse events. And for the objective response rate, that 17 patients were uh, evaluable for response. And of these uh, 17 patients, we saw responses in 10 patients. Two of four patients dosed at 7 milligrams and eight of 13 patients dosed on 8 milligram. So showing a 50% and 60% objective response rate at 7 or 8 milligram per kilogram respectively. The disease control rate with this compound was uh, impressive with 94%. Regarding uh, the most common treatment, emergent adverse events we've seen is vomiting, fatigue and nausea and adverse events grade 3 equal or greater grade 3 where syncope, anemia and hypo. Uh, There was no occurrence of interstitial lung disease and also no drug discontinuation or death due to treatment emergent adverse events. For the Ruby trial, we've seen uh, two interesting new pieces of data, I'll start with the Q-Twist data. What is Q-Twist? This is the quality adjusted time without symptoms of disease or toxicity, we all remember the Ruby trial. It is a phase three trial uh, in advanced and first recurrent endometrial carcinoma patients, where uh, chemotherapy plus uh, dostarlimab and maintenance treatment with dostarlimab was compared to chemotherapy alone. This uh, quality-adjusted survival was calculated based on the safety population as the sum product of mean survival time in three mutually exclusive states. And one of these states was time without symptoms of progression or toxicity, the twist. And these data, I will show you now for the overall population, for the DMMR population, and for the PMMR population. The median twist was significantly higher in the overall population in the DMMR population and in the PMMR uh, population with differences of 4.4, 5.4 and 2.6 months respectively, comparing Dostalimab plus chemotherapy versus pure chemotherapy. Thus, the addition of Dostalimab significantly Improved quality-adjusted survival in each of these three populations examined. We also saw um, the safety data in detail now in the Ruby trial, another nice uh, piece of data presented at ESCO-Istanbul Congress. Um, we have seen the data of the safety population of a total of 487 patients. The treatment emergent adverse event equal or bigger than three, about 10% higher rate in the Dostalimab plus chemo arm compared to the chemo alone arm. The discontinuation rate of Dostalimab or placebo uh, due to treatment aversion adverse events was 17 versus 9% approximately in the combination arm versus chemo alone. Importantly, the uh, completion of chemotherapy was uh, the same rate in both arms. Thus, the addition of dostarlimab to chemotherapy did not compromise the completion of the chemotherapy treatment in uh, the Ruby trial. If we look at immune related adverse events, Of course, as expected, in the combination arm, chemoplastostalimab higher than in the chemotherapy alone arm. Here we see uh, the prevalence of uh, treatment uh, emergent adverse events. The most common ones in ISA arms were fatigue, alopecia and nausea. If we look at uh, equal, greater than three treatment emergent adverse events, the most common ones, more than 10%, were anemia and neutrophil count reduction. There were five deaths uh, reported in the Dostalimab arm, Uh, two of them were deemed related to Dostalimab and three were not related to study treatment. So, in conclusion, we've seen first promising activity uh, and safety data from the compound DB1303 and ADC targeting HER2. And from the Ruby trial, we have seen beautiful new data showing uh, significantly longer quality adjusted time without symptoms of disease and toxicity in the combination arm of chemotherapy plus dostarlimab compared to chemotherapy alone. The safety profile of dostarlimab and chemotherapy was consistent with that of the individual components. The most common treatment emergent adverse events occurred more frequently during the chemotherapy and importantly, the addition of dostarlimab did not compromise the completion rate of chemotherapy. Thank you, Professor
0: Konsin, for your review of the emerging data in this area. Let's invite Dr. Miesa and Dr. Pignata again to discuss their perspectives on these data.
3: If I may start with the with the ADCs against HER two targeting the HER two, I think this is an amazing time we see. We saw at ASCO this year the data on Destiny trial on the TDXd, uh, the patients who had uh, HER two three plus, the response rates were eighty seven percent, and above sixty percent for the HER two uh, two positive, and 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 this uh, the new ADC by BioNTech is. Uh, is again confirming the same. I, I I think we I would have wished that we had more data available on one plus because I believe one plus could be another uh, bigger population because two plus and three plus are about 20 25 percent of the population. If we had one plus, we could have had forty percent of the population. Uh, but the validation of the biomarker for one plus is still ongoing. And we may not have for endometrial cancer, a one plus biomarker until end of next year. So the phase three trials are now starting, uh, for, for, for two plus and three plus. And I'm sure that this will be another giant leap. We will see the results, uh, in coming years. Uh, definitely this is going to uh, change our standard of care. Sandro, what, what do you think?
2: Uh, well, two, two points. The first is that uh, uh, antibodies uh, drug conjugates are uh, completely completely changing the, the scenario in many oncology diseases. So it's not just data in gynecological cancer, where we also have seen recently important data coming, but in every disease. So it's the concept of uh, targeting uh, with the antibody that is working very well. And uh, regarding the data presented at ESGO, I have to say that this follows our previous discussion. So we we have now some new uh, drugs targeting specific population of endometrial cancer. So this concept is valid in the early endometrial cancer, but in the future, we will have more data in the metastatic setting where uh, one dress Probably doesn't treat everyone, but we need uh, more specifically uh, target and uh, uh, and, uh, and new drugs uh, for the treatment of our patients.
3: And on, on top of that, I think we are starting learning how to how to manage the toxicity of these drugs. We had initially quite a lot of ILT, and and I I think that we have we have moved to a phase where we are really and trying to tackle all these things uh, and um, uh, keeping the efficacy.
1: Yeah, it's a a really interesting concept to deliver the cytotoxic payload specifically to the cancer cell by targeting proteins uh, on their surface that are specific to cancer. Um, So this HER2 approach seems very promising, as you said. Mansoor, will it be mainly the p53 abnormal? Thinking about molecular uh, categories again, can you elaborate a bit on, on on that?
3: Exactly. So this is a subgroup of patients who are p53 abnormal, uh, uh, 2 plus and 3 plus. And basically what we are seeing is this is actually before we started targeted therapy, one of the worst groups, right? Uh, if you look at the early data, what we have seen. So we are really targeting that worst group and in changing it to completely different status, uh, what we are doing. Um, this this uh, two, two plus and three plus will be consisting if you take histological types, mainly serous adenocarcinoma and some carcinosarcomas. sarcomas. So these are the patients with real unmet need. And we are going to completely change the outcome of the, these patients. I'm very sure about that.
1: Wonderful. Uh, the quality of life data uh, that we have seen now in the Ruby trial, I think this is really important data uh, to look. I mean, what what we would like to see in our patients is, of course, improved survival as uh, the hard end point, but at the same time, improved quality of life. This is really what we wish from a treatment. Do you have considerations on these data?
2: Yeah, sure. I think this is very important. Um, of, of, of course, the, the, the trial was randomized, so uh, uh, it was a comparison, uh, against placebo, but uh, in in the practice, we are comparing a maintenance therapy, chemotherapy with a maintenance compared to observation. So the fact that this maintenance uh, does not impair the quality of life and that the symptoms are not so strong uh, uh, in impairing the life of the patient is very important because the quantity data are fantastic in the particularly the DMMR population. And and so we, these additional data presented at Despo, uh, I think are very reassuring as on the patient point of view, uh, because the symptoms are manageable and many of the symptoms we have seen
3: are in the chemotherapy phase and are related to chemotherapy. I, I, I feel that we are privileged. We are privileged because um, we have, worked hard to design these new trials. Uh, and we believed in, uh, in these trials that they will change the outcome of our patients. And we are seeing these results, these magnificent results in our lifetime. So that's, that's the great, great feeling we all have. We are part of it, all of us that we are improving, we are considerably improving the outcome of our patients regarding efficacy. If you look the Kaplan-Meier curves, especially in the DMMR population, you would see also in the overall survival, um, in the PFS after 12 months, they're just flattened at 60%. So we probably are curing some of these patients and the same is the case for overall survival. Uh, toxicity profile is quite quite balanced and manageable. And on top of that, that we improved the patient reported outcomes. We saw the Q-Twist data uh, today. So it's a win-win situation. We are completely changing the course of this disease. Uh, And as you said, uh, Nicole, this is a true Cinderella story.
1: And these are some really important points that you've made here. Uh, particularly what Sandro said, I mean, we are adding a maintenance treatment uh, to patients with advanced stage and recurrent disease. So how wonderful it is to see that this does not impair, uh, opposite is true, the quality of life of the, of the patients. So these are really uh, important data that we've seen here. And it it's wonderful to see the overall uh process and we're really lucky to to be there in that time where individualized treatment per molecular group is becoming the reality do you have considerations on the safety data that we've seen in Ruby trial
2: I know I think um, most of the oncologists, gynecologists involved in endometrial cancer, but uh, I have a, probably as a medical oncology, a larger view, uh, also in other diseases. I think uh, we learned that a uh, uh, single agent immunotherapy, uh, even if combined with chemotherapy uh, and a good safety profile, we are uh, now, there is a training course, of course, in identifying and uh, treating the immunorelated uh, side effects, but uh, everything is feasible. And, uh, and uh, the balance between the, the positive effect and the negative effect related to the side effect is totally uh, in favour of the treatment.
0: That was an interesting discussion by our experts. Thank you. Professor Konsin, let's move on now to the latest efficacy and safety data in advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer, with a focus now on other emerging agents.
1: We have seen some nice new pieces of data at ESCO Istanbul Congress. Uh, a lot is going on on molecularly targeted uh, uh, treatments, And very interesting data we've seen in P53 wild type endometrial carcinoma with uh, two drugs, selinexor, and one trial ongoing now with Naftemadlin and we'll uh, have a little bit, a closer look on these trials. So let's start with the the nice presentation of Alexandro uh, Fidalgo on the long term follow-up of Selexinor maintenance for patients with P53 wild type advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer. This was a pre-specified subgroup analysis of the phase three Siendo trial, ENGOT EN5 and GOG3055 trial. So what kind of trial was this? Uh, The Siendo trial is a randomized phase three trial that includes stage four endometrial carcinoma patients or first recurrent uh, patients. They receive uh, chemotherapy and when they respond to chemotherapy, they have been randomized to either receive maintenance treatment with Selenexor or no maintenance treatment placebo. What is Selenexor? Selenexor is an XPO1 inhibitor. This is a nuclear export inhibitor. And uh, by inhibiting nuclear export, many wild-type tumor suppressor genes such as p53 is kept in the nucleus. So it keeps the proapoptoptic wild-type tumor suppressor gene in the nucleus. We have now seen presented at ESCO Istanbul Congress the long-term follow-up data of this trial with a median follow-up of more than 20 months. And this is the beautiful results in the p53 wild type group. You see that the addition of selinexor during maintenance treatment has significantly improved PFS in p53 wild type patients. What's about the adverse events with this drug? The most common adverse events include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Most common uh, equal or bigger grade three adverse events are neutropenia, nausea, thrombocytopenia. This uh, successful concept of the Cendo trial, uh, applying Selexinor in the maintenance treatment Um, in advanced and recurrent endometrial carcinoma patients is now further advanced to a globally enrolling phase three trial, the ENGOT EN20 trial, uh, which includes now only the specific group of patients with P53 wild type endometrial carcinoma, And after response to chemotherapy, they are again randomized to receive maintenance treatment with selenexor or placebo. And we eagerly await uh, the results of this trial. Now we move on to another compound which uh, works in a similar direction as selinexor uh, the drug is naftemadlin naftemadlin is the, is an mdm2 inhibitor and mdm2 is the key negative regulator of uh, p53 so by inhibiting mdm2 you will also increase pro-apoptotic p53 wild type levels in the cancer cell. What is the design of uh, the trial, which is an ENGOT and GOG trial, ENGOT EN21, GOG 3089. This trial is in advanced stage four and first recurrent endometrial carcinoma patients. uh, The patients receive chemotherapy uh, up to six cycles and in case of complete or partial response to chemotherapy, the patients will receive in the part one of the study, nafta maintenance treatment at two different dose levels that are explored, 180 milligrams or 240 milligrams every day. It's an oral drug day one to day seven in a four weeks uh, cycle. And there is one arm as a control where no maintenance treatment is provided. This is part one, a phase two trial is the part one, to explore the dose with the primary endpoint of recommended phase three dose. And then there follows the part two, which is a phase three trial, where finally the randomization will take place for either maintenance treatment with nafta at the dose determined in the part one, or no maintenance treatment placebo. So to conclude, uh, the Celexinor maintenance treatment has shown a durable progression-free survival and significant increased progression-free survival in the p53 wild-type endometrial carcinoma uh, population. And there is another trial ongoing with Naftamadlin MDM2 inhibitor that also restores P53-mediated apoptosis in P53 wild-type tumors. And we look forward to seeing the first results of this trial. Professor Consin,
0: thank you for your review of the data in this area. Let's ask our panelists, Dr. Mirsa and Dr. Piñata, to provide their expert clinical insight and perspectives on these developments again.
1: What is your interpretation or what are your considerations on these P53 wild-type approaches?
2: Well, my my first uh, thought is that these are extraordinary times because uh, uh, this is the type of new modern trial that we will see more and more in the future. Here, we are targeting a specific population, the, the patient with P53 uh, wild type. Previously, we have seen a population with P53 abnormal. So th- this is what we want to do for the future, to have uh, uh, data in all these populations. Of course, these are preliminary data, but the, the phase three are ongoing, and we will see soon uh, the results and these promise to again modify the algorithm of treatment for our patients.
3: Yeah, and I completely agree, especially uh, when we'll have the more granulation on the results of the immune checkpoint inhibitor trials, uh, we probably will see that the patients who are P53 wild type and so-called cold tumors, MMR-proficient, and uh, NSMP, these are the patients who benefit least from immune checkpoint inhibitors. And, and this will be, again, an unmet need. And there, uh, the, the NGOT-EN5C the endotrial has shown in the subgroup analysis an unprecedented increase. The, long, the, the new uh, uh, analysis, the longer-time analysis showed, actually, PFS increased from 5 months to 27 months in the median which is really uh, uh, amazing and if that because it was the subgroup analysis uh, study was not powered to uh, to that so one has to do the confirmatory trial and then that's different mechanism with naftamedline so i think these two trials are going to change our standard of care once again in that subgroup of patients, which is really great, as Sandra said. We are living in a great time.
1: This, this is really wonderful uh, uh, perspective for our patients, right? So yeah. I I was very happy to um listen to humans who are now mentioning the NSMP, non-specific molecular profile. Uh, Because we always talk about P53 wild type with this drug. Can we add, please, can you explain, can you add a bit more granularity to this P53 wild type? What molecular subtypes does P53 wild type comprise? And for which of these molecular subtypes do you think that these drugs are of particular interest?
3: Yeah, I think that's a that's great question. So what is p53 wild type population? Basically, most of these patients are endometrioid adenocarcinoma grade one and two. One third of p53 wild type are also MMR deficient. Uh, so there you have immune therapy, which is doing a great job. Uh, about 90% of these patients are estrogen receptor positive. So there we would probably will see addition of uh, CDK4/6 inhibitors to endocrine therapy to see if we can benefit them more, and and then you have this the left two third of the population of p53 wild type, which is uh, which is NSMP, which is uh, p5 uh, which is MMR proficient, and that population is in a real unmet need, and I believe that we will see these drugs are doing. Miracles in whole B fifty three wild type population, including the those who are dMMR. But for dMMR, we already have a very effective treatment available. But when it comes to MMRP subtype, I think we are going to really change their 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 outcome by these two drugs.
1: Th- thanks. I think this is really important to stress, right? So the the the. Wild type is everything what is not mutant, what is not P53 yes. mutant is wild yes. type. So, 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 and as you nicely said, the DMMR within the wild type, we have amazing results of immune therapy that will probably be very very difficult to beat uh, but but the proficient wild type which is actually the NSMP this is the for did we really have a high unmet need in this patient population and now there comes the drugs it's it's wonderful news um Sandro, do you have considerations on this?
2: Yes, I think this is a a very interesting population because in the uh, patients that are not DMMR and are uh, P53 wild type, there are several different mutations, for example, that are today targeted. Think about uh, PI3 kinase inhibitors, think to new endocrine uh, therapies. And probably in some cases, we, we could combine treatments. Uh, of course, it will be difficult to design the studies because uh, if we do subgroups of subgroups, uh, it will be uh, difficult to enroll, but this is the task for Engel.
1: Do you have more considerations on the NSMP or on other potentially emerging drugs besides what we've now discussed?
3: As Sandro has already mentioned the big three CA, we are trying to put up uh, trials with the drugs which are uh, the, which are hitting the MTO 2 big three CA pathways. Uh, there we are trying to develop the drugs with estrogen receptor positive disease with cdk 46 inhibitors combination. Uh, so we are th- there are many other things happening, which will which will be Adding to it, another thing we need, still need, which is, which is, we haven't reached there, is in the same population uh, of so-called uh, uh, MMR uh, NSMP, the, the MMRP or the wild type, there is a small subgroup of patients who are uh, who have a very high tumor mutational burden, and we have to figure out how we do. We have a validated test to find that because these patients will again have benefit from immune checkpoint inhibitors more than uh, anything else. So I think we have to further divide these, this subgroup into smaller and smaller populations. but I'm sure that we can do trials in these subsets and subsets and, and, and show benefit for our patients.
1: So the four molecular subtypes are not the end of the story.
3: It's just the tip uh, of the iceberg.
1: The tip of the iceberg. It's just beginning. We will have more granularity within the molecular subtypes, and it's it's we're there to design the right trials for the right patient population. This is this is a big challenge, and I think with all the new opportunities and evidence, also a big excitement uh, and good news. For our
3: patients, I would I would again like to 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 insist that we start stop thinking about first line, second line. No, the first the disease then the relapse disease and this. We should go the other way around, as I said. If we lo- look at the MMRT population as separate and see what we do after progression and so on and so on, take the other population of uh, you know uh, had to and so on and so on. We have to rethink in our mind how we look at this disease, how we are going to treat this disease.
1: fully agree. Uh, Sandro, do you have summarizing final words?
2: I also agree. What I can say is that all this information will be useful also for the patients that will occur after immunotherapy because uh, also the MMR patients have some other abnormalities that can give us the opportunity to treat specifically in the recurrence. So it's uh, really an evolving landscape uh, that of endometrial cancer.
1: So it's important to know these molecular characteristics at diagnosis and at relapse. Uh, I want to thank this wonderful faculty uh, Mansur, Sandro, thank you very much for sharing your important considerations and for joining this discussion. And I want to thank the audience for watching this uh webcast and this podcast. And I hope you enjoyed reviewing the latest data of ESCO Congress in Istanbul 23 with us. I hope to see you soon. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this touch podcast. You can access more content on this topic on touch oncology at www.touchoncology.com.